is in. Copper in alone with Stewart. Back in. Scores! Over the blue line. Space. Philly on near circle. Back door. Feet. What a blocker save by Portillo. Here comes Halliday. Left wing. Joined by Beck. Halliday will sauce it for Beck. Stick with forehand. What a goal! For plenty of time and space. Walking in near circle. To the back end of the slot. Fever. Beach it. Tucks it in. What a goal! Cross ice. St. Val has it. Backdoor shot. What a save. Portillo. It's loose. And another save. Right pad. He's miraculous. Welcome to our house. You're listening to the Fighting Saints Report. I welcome you into the Fighting Saints Report, the podcast version. We're not going live over the airwaves anymore, but we still want to bring you all the great content that we try to bring throughout the season. And with the season ending early, we have the opportunity to to recap a lot of good things that happened this season as I welcome you into this edition of the Fighting Saints Report. Jack Molesky joined uh, an appropriate social distance away from Jim Leitner. I think, <laughs> I think 14 hours covers the guidelines set by the CDC. Correct. I think it's uh, – it was kind of funny. I saw we're out up in Canada. They're saying that uh, proper social distancing is actually a hockey stick, stick length away so it's, leave it to the people up in Canada to come up with something creative to figure out how, uh, how far acceptable social distance is. That means if you were going based off Sedano Chara's hockey stick, you'd just have overkill for your social distance. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that, that's a good visual for us. We can probably ab- abide by that rule as well since we're talking hockey all the time. Uh, social distancing, stay a hockey stick away from uh, each other at, at all times to hopefully help stop the spread of this as quickly as possible. Uh, but what we wanted to do today was uh, we've been talking about different ways we can highlight how great this season was um, and how exciting it was. And right now on social media, I uh, know we're doing a contest, the top 10 games of the season. Uh, a lot of our fans are voting on that. And then we're going to unveil the top five as voted on by the fans next week. Uh, but what we wanted to do was we had a collection of games that we felt were some of the best this year, uh, our top five. And so we just wanted to, to break down each of those games and, and how exciting they were from a broadcast standpoint and from just a fan perspective. Uh, and most of these games that we have on our list were in the top 10 that we put out on social media. So it'll be interesting to see if the fans agree with our assessment in what these top five of the season were. And I, I think at least for this team, there, there were more than just these five that you could have fit in the top five. So it's not an exact science, but uh, I think there were a lot of great games you certainly could have put into a top five, let alone a top 10. Oh, no doubt about it. And I think uh, <clears throat> for the, our purposes, I think we tried to find games that were a little bit different or had a different, <clears throat> different kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, different kind of theme or different kind of uh, storyline. You know, I think, you know, you, there were a couple games that were, you know, blowout wins, you know, we didn't, you know, we didn't look at both of those, although those could have been those are a couple more than more than a couple that could have been that could have been in the top five but we kind of go try to go with a little different theme and a little different uh uh different look at some different games so just a little bit better variety and we'll go in chronological order here uh for these games and so the first one we start off with is one that happened very early in the season it was actually the fourth game of the season for the fighting saints and that was on october 13th against the Tri-City Storm. It was a one-game weekend. It was a Sunday afternoon game in Tri-City for the Fighting Saints. 
And this is a big one even before you get to the game and how the outcome happened because you just don't want to make an eight-hour bus ride for one game and not win that one game. And so the Fighting Saints were able to get the victory. And how they did it was even more impressive because as we had talked about all season long, Tri-City is just so structurally sound defensively. They're tough to play against. And when we recap this game the, the week after with the Fighting Saints report, we talked about how for 55 minutes of that game, Tri-City played a near-perfect game and stifling a great start for the Fighting Saints. Yeah, and it they did. They played an outstanding game. And in, like you mentioned, that was Dubuque's first – that was their only game of the weekend. And even, I guess, a little bit deeper dive into their, their season, that was the fourth game of the season. That was a one-game weekend. The previous weekend was a one-game weekend. Mm -hmm. And then uh, – so this was actually the third weekend of the season – uh, they played two games on the first weekend, one game on the second weekend, and one game on this third. And, you know, remembering back to that time, you know, I think the guys were pretty – they were all itching to play more games. And, you know, they were only playing one game a week. It was, it was kind of like a football schedule more than anything else. And uh, so I know the guys were, uh, you know, excited to play hockey games. And, you know, I, I think that's it, – it's kind of – it can be kind of detrimental when you're not playing a lot at the beginning of the season and, you know, it's hard to get into a game flow, mm -hmm. um, you know, and you're spending an entire week of practice just for one game, you know, they, it's, there's a difference between practice shape and game shape. And, you know, I think at that point, I don't know that the fighting saints were in the best of game shape because they weren't playing a lot of games. Uh, but as you mentioned, Tri-City came out and played a great great game and if I'm not mistaken I think that might have been their second or third game of that weekend mm -hmm. I think it was just their second game but but so they were probably in a little bit better of a flow and again you mentioned that you make an eight-hour trip out to Tri-City you want to make the most of it and uh, you know after kind of a sluggish you know start of the game I think they did yeah from what I remember Tri-City was their second game but they actually had played earlier that week, maybe a Wednesday or a Thursday that week. And then the night before they were in Waterloo. So they had played the night before, not gotten back to Tri-City till about four or five in the morning and had to wake up and play an afternoon game. Uh, so, so both teams, it was unorthodox weeks for different reasons, but yeah, Tri-City was dominant. Eric Portillo made a couple big saves to keep Dubuque in that game, especially in the third period, but the shots were in the low twenties heading into the final five minutes and then Dubuque scores three times in the last 530 they got a power play goal from Ty Jackson and then the big moment the, the reason this becomes one of the top five games outside of just being able to fight back on the road is Reese Gaber scoring the game winner with 21 seconds left in regulation and it, at 21 with 21 seconds left no matter what and you score the game winner that's a big deal but the fact that Dubuque had been stifled for the first 55 minutes of that game and had gotten nothing offensively I think pushes this game over the top and anytime you have a last second game winner I remember the reaction for an early season game it was a very enthusiastic response by Gaber and the rest of the team so that was a huge goal to set the tone for what Gaber did the entire season. Yeah, I remember that at that at that point in the season, you know, the Fighting Saints were they were playing a lot of real close hockey games, and and it, they were all tight one goal games, and you know there were a lot of games at that early start of the season like this, where they they weren't scoring a lot of goals and they were keeping everything tight, 
and they were finding a way in the third period. And, and I think that this was a game that was really indicative of that theme uh, to the season where, you know, they were finding, you know, at the beginning of the season, they were finding ways to win hockey games. And, you know, at the first they were over, uh, I think they were over three on the power play before, before Ty Jackson scored that equalizer. And I think that's really where the momentum shift. And if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was a, a turnover, you know, on the, on the part of uh, Tri-City that led to Reese Gaber's game-winning goal. And, uh, you know, I think that was just a matter of, you knew Tri-City was going to be a little bit tired because of all the travel and, you know, it was in a difficult situation. It was just a matter of biding their time and, and capitalizing when the, when the circumstances uh, warranted. And, you know, that was when they did that. And I, th I think the first maybe couple months of the season, it was very similar to that where, you know, they, they found ways to win those games in the third period. And, and uh, they certainly did that in this game uh, on October 13th. Antonio Venuto adds an empty netter at the end of that game, but the Fighting Saints, that was a, a big character win early on in the season. And, and they, this wasn't a team that was down that much throughout the year. We mentioned how many blowout wins we went through looking for the, the top five games. But this did show that even when a team that has had a, lot of, had a lot of success this season had their backs against the wall, they never gave up. And that was a, a really early indication of what this team was made of. So game number one on our list, October 13th against Tri-City, Gaber, the game winner with 21 seconds left. Um, the next game is a completely different one that we have on our list, but a historic game for not just the Fighting Saints, but for anyone in the USHL. And that's November 22nd. This is one of two times that the Fighting Saints beat the Waterloo Blackhawks at the Young Arena by six goals. But when they did it on November 22nd, a 7-1 victory in which Matthew Koprud had a hat trick, it was the very first time in the 17-year Tier 1 era that Waterloo had been beaten by six goals or more by someone on their home ice. So it, it was crazy to find out that stat shortly after the game ended and uh, to see that game in person. It was domination from the puck drop to the final whistle. Yeah, and I think this was a great bounce back because they'd played them earlier in the month and uh, lost three to two at home uh, at, at Mystique. And, you know, it was a great bounce back because the Fighting Saints, I think that first game when they lost three to two, I thought they were, uh, for at least 40 minutes, I thought they were the better of the two teams. And they just kind of shot themselves in the foot with a couple penalties in the third period. And, you know, uh, I think there's a penalty shot goal that uh, was a big factor for Wyatt, for Wyatt Chingolfi in that first game. And it, this was a, what I really liked about this bounce back was, you know, for, for many years, Waterloo has kind of had Dubuque's number. They've been a frustrating team to play against. And uh, that first meeting, I think that was, you know, a continuation of that frustration. Mm -hmm. And this was a game where they just said, all right, you know, we're, you know, we can, we can skate with Waterloo. We can play with them. We could beat them. And they did it in emphatic fashion. And I think that was uh you know, it was still relatively early in the season, uh, but I thought that was a, that was a, a really important win because it showed that you could beat, you know, one of the really elite teams in the USHL and not just beat them, but beat them handily. And, uh, you know, I think that was a big key. And, and this was a game, too, that was a relatively close game for probably 20 minutes or so. And, you know, and Waterloo had a real nice pushback. Uh, but in, instead of allowing Waterloo back into this game, 
they put their foot on the accelerator and really opened it up in that third period with three more goals to, to make it 7-1. Yeah, and not only was it a 7-1 victory, as we have alluded to, that's probably the, the big portion of this game that puts it into the the top five, but also Matthew Koprud has a hat-trick, the first hat-trick of the season for the Fighting Saints this year in a year that they had, had four total hat-tricks from um, different members of the team. So that was a little bit of a, a cherry on top to a game that already really had everything in terms of success for the Fighting Saints. Yeah, and that was uh, – I think that's really when Matthew really started to really exert himself. Because up until that point, I think he only had two goals. You know, so he uh, he more than doubled his, his goal output. And, you know, he, he was a, a – outstanding player and you know with the the Saints got him because of his his ability to shoot the puck you know which is something that they really didn't have a lot of last season uh and you know he went out and, and really exerted himself and had a great game and you know for my money I thought he was going to for sure be the uh, offensive player of the week in the USHL that week but he wasn't uh, but uh yeah he that was an outstanding game for him and you know he scored some really important goals in that game too I think he, uh, you know, he scored the, the first two goals in the first period, and then he scored the fifth goal, which was a nice answer because it came right at, shortly after Waterloo scored, and, and that really kind of sealed the game because Waterloo was starting to get back into the game. They started to have a real nice push, and uh, for him to score that goal, the kind of – it really seemed like it took a lot of wind out of Waterloo's sails when he scored that fifth goal and the, the hat-trick goal to uh, – to put it out of reach. Yeah, big goal from Copperwood and a huge statement by the Fighting Saints. And uh, we, we didn't have the second goal or second game of this nature in the top five just because we didn't want to essentially have a duplicate. But it, it can almost be grouped together in the sense that they completed this feat of beating Waterloo by six, not just once, but twice in the same season. And I believe it was in back-to-back -back trips to Young Arena as well. So uh, pretty incredible stuff by the Fighting Saints there. And, and certainly that milestone in and of itself will be uh, highlighted this by, by how great it was and that it happened multiple times this season. Uh, we'll continue now with the countdown. We've got three more games left. We're going to get you one more game now. Then the uh, interview that we did with former fighting St. Nate Susis, catching up with him in his uh, professional career that just took a big step forward with him signing the contract with the Arizona Coyotes. And then we'll come back with the final two games. But as we move along here in chronological order, we go from one hat trick to another. But again, a hat trick for a historic reason. And that was December 6th against Muskegon, Braden Doyle becomes the first fighting Saints defenseman in the Tier 1 era to record a hat-trick. Yeah, that was an outstanding game. And I, I remember that was a point where, you know, uh, just prior to that, Coach Oliver David was really encouraging Braden Doyle to, to step up into the rush and, you know, to really exert himself more offensively than he had been. <clears throat> when, he first, when he first came here, he played prep school last year. and his his main focus coming in was just to to really work on his, the defensive side of his game because he knew that's what he really needed to work on uh, heading forward to, before he goes off to college. And I think he was really a lot more focused on the defensive end and, you know, conversation with the coaching staff to really encourage him to to get more involved in the offense, jump up into the play and, and uh, exert himself. I, I think that's really what happened. You know, and that's not 
as easy as it sounds because when you're a defenseman jumping up into the play, it's, it's not a real, you, you have to do it with, uh, with caution and you have to be smart about it. You can't just go up there and, you know, just jump in for the sake of jumping in. You have to understand, you know, how your forwards can back and get back and cover the point for you or cover defensively if you're jumping up into the rush. And so it, it does take an adjustment, especially when you go from prep school to, to the USHL level. It took him a little while to do that. But this was, I think, really the first game where he really, really, started to exert himself off offensively and jump into the play like like coach David said and um it was an outstanding breakthrough game for him and that was a part of a weekend sweep for the fighting saints so it was a theme that was pretty prevalent this entire season of winning not one but two games uh during a weekend and Doyle had the only goal of the game through the first two periods for the fighting saints then he got goal number two then the Fighting Saints took off in the third period, got a couple more as well after Doyle's. But his his final goal, the hat trick goal, was uh, a very impressive goal. And I know you talked to him after the game. I did as well. And he said after the game, I asked him, I said, it really seemed like on that goal, you knew that if you scored here, it was going to be the hat trick. And, you know, he was he admitted it right away. He said, yeah, the hat trick was kind of the only thing he had in his mind at that point because it normally isn't a move that you make as a defenseman. You catch it at the blue line, and you basically try to take on the entire team by yourself to score. Usually you don't make that move as a defenseman, but where that game was in terms of already being out of reach in the Fighting Saints' favor and where Doyle was with two goals, it was a, a worthwhile risk that then paid off in spades when he found the back of the net. Yeah, and the cool thing, too, is, you know, talking to him afterwards, you know, and, and mentioning to him or, or pointing out to him that that was a first Patrick by a, a defenseman in the USHL Tier 1 history for the Saints. You know, he was actually kind of taken back by that, or he was kind of, you know, uh, a little surprised by that. Because Dubuque has had some really nice defensemen, really good high-scoring defensemen in the last 10 years. And, you know, it, it was kind of cool that he uh, understood the history and he understood some of the names of, defenseman that came before him and he really appreciated that, that the fact that he was the first one to do it and you know I think that was that was kind of cool too and but you're right that was a, a great move by him to to seal off that hat trick and and really uh, seal off an impressive win against a Muskegon team. Yeah, that individual accomplishment alone makes it a, a great game for the Fighting Saints and the main reason it makes our list, but also it was just a, a clinical performance, which we saw a lot of from the Fighting Saints in, in dismantling uh, the, the opposition and the Fighting Saints win that game. They go on to sweep that weekend series with Muskegon. We'll take our first break on the show, and when we come back, you'll hear my interview with Saint for Life Nate Susis as we talk about his career at Penn State, his favorite moments from Dubuque, and also him signing a contract with the Arizona Coyotes, his first professional NHL contract. Back in a moment on the Fighting Saints Report. And now we welcome a, a very special guest here onto the show. It's a former Fighting Saint. If we were posting it on Twitter, it would be Saint for Life, Nate Susis. And Nate, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Nate, obviously, former Fighting Saint, uh, just finished your Penn State career. We'll get into that a little bit because I know it's not the ending that anyone wanted right now in the sports world. But most recently, let's start with the fact that you are now a, a member of the Arizona Coyotes. You signed that entry-level deal just uh, a couple weeks ago. And so when you look at the signing that deal and what went into the process, when you finally inked that deal, what was the overall feeling? 
Uh, it was just a, a feeling of achievement. Uh, there's been a lot of hard work, not only by me, but you know, all my family members uh, with, with time and obviously money put into this uh, crazy sport that we play. So um, to be able to put the pen to paper was uh, a huge accomplishment and uh, I'm ready to take advantage of the opportunity. Yeah, and when you when you look at your career for Penn State, I, I don't want to delve too much into the the abruptness and the end of the season because it's not what anyone wants to talk about right now. But just take us through. I'm sure it was about a 24 hour period where you you get the news and, and you figure it out. Everyone has different stories where they were, how it happened for them. But how did you end up finding out the news? You know, we were. Uh, I, I live with three other guys in my class, and we were sitting on the couch. We just got done with. Uh, Thursday workout and practice, getting ready to play in our semifinal game um, uh, in the Big Ten tournament. And uh, it, it was pretty hard to find out on Twitter. You know, NCAA goes in and cancels all the NCAA tournaments and before the Big Ten had even canceled our tournament. So we went from, you know, early in the, earlier in the week, uh, playing without fans, being able to have four family members in in the crowd to – 24 hours later, getting the news of all of uh, NCAA sports being canceled. Uh, that being said, you do get to accomplish something that Penn State hockey had yet to do this season, and that's a regular season Big Ten title. Those last couple weeks were crazy, and the Big Ten, uh, me being a Penn Stater, I got to follow it as well very closely, but it's so tough to win two games in a row in the Big Ten. I don't think people realize how tough that is. But when you were able to win those two games against Minnesota and then you're watching from your couch the next weekend, finding out that you're in sole possession of the regular season title, what were those two weeks like? It was crazy. We knew we had to, uh, the last weekend of the year, um, we actually had a bye. So our second to last weekend of the year was our regular season final games. And we had to get, you know, five, five out of six points to even give us a chance to get the regular season title. And then the next uh, weekend when we had our bye, we were all watching everybody else's games. And there was two teams that had a chance to get five out of six points, which we did the weekend before to capture the title, and they didn't. So we ended up having a, a second bye in the first round of the Big Ten. And uh, ultimately, we never got to play our semifinal game. So to be able to go out, I guess, as a champion uh, as for the regular season uh, was, I guess, you know, a, a cherry on top of, you know, coming out of this bad situation in the sports world, if you want to put it that way. And you go out a champion again, if if you will. I know that uh, hockey players are, are pretty humble, so they're not going to claim full ownership of a, of a title without winning the tournament as well. But you came into Penn State as a champion as well, because your first season with the Nittany Lions was an incredible run through the Big Ten championship that culminates with Liam Folks's double overtime winner against Wisconsin. So to start at a program at Penn State that was pretty new by winning a Big Ten tournament, what was that first year like for you? It was crazy, honestly. That's the only word to describe it. Uh, there was a lot of us coming in, uh, I think 10 of us in our freshman class, and no one really knew what to expect because we had about half of a new team. And for our class to come in and have the impact that we did, on the program to be able to capture that uh, that championship in Detroit in double overtime and then also the double overtime game before that in the semis against Minnesota. And a, a lot of the freshman uh, class had a, a huge impact. If you want to look back at Peyton Jones being our starting goalie as a freshman and then, uh, you know, Dennis Smirnoff 
had a huge, I think, 47-point season that year. And then ultimately, Liam Folks being a freshman, getting the pass from Brandon Byro, uh, who was also a freshman, to score that game winner against Wisconsin to to get the ring on our finger. And it was it kind of just came full circle. Uh, we thought this year with the Frozen Four being back in Detroit, where we had won the Big Ten championship, but uh, ultimately never got to that point. That all those names that you you just mentioned coming in with you at a freshman class as well. How nice of a feeling is it to know that you were part of a class that has been so instrumental in continuing to build what Penn State has started to build seven years ago? It's it's incredible. Um, those those three names outside of uh, Dennis Smirnoff were actually my roommates uh, all four years. So for our apartment to kind of have the impact that we did on this program and the legacy leading forward, um, I hope. Uh, the guys behind us take advantage of the opportunity and know that uh, every day is different and you got to put in the work, but ultimately you don't have to be an upperclassman to make a difference. And I think that's what we did hitting the ground running freshman year. And uh, I think other classes, as our program gets on the map, we'll be able to do that right away. And you won't just be remembered for those uh, those accolades that we just mentioned, but you're also going to be remembered, at least for the time being, as Penn State's all-time career points leader when you hit that milestone I know a lot of play, uh, most players are all about team versus individual success but was that kind of even a moment for you where you could step back and reflect and think wow look how far I've come in these four years absolutely I think uh, you can take time to reflect on personal achievements uh, personally um, and, and getting that uh, goal scoring title in, in Minnesota where I had never scored a goal in my four years uh, up until this year on the road in Minnesota where I captured the, the goal scoring title was super um, proud of myself for that achievement. And, uh, and then ultimately at Robert Morris later on in January, getting the, the all time points leading total over David Goodwins uh, was super, uh, you know, surreal. And be, to be able to have my name at the top of the leaderboard for, for the time being, at least I'm sure it won't last long. Um, is something I can go down in history and, and move forward with and have that uh, attached to my name. Uh, before we dive back into a, a couple of uh, questions about the Fighting Saints, your time there, as as you've had a, a little bit more time, obviously the, the emotions are still raw, but when you look back at your four years at, at Penn State, how do you try to, to sum that up if anyone asks, what was four years like playing at Pagula Ice Arena? To, to have the opportunity to play in this atmosphere in front of the Roar Zone, uh, for people that know, don't know as our student section, uh, they, they stand from the glass all the way up to the ceiling, and they made the Roar Zone as steep as code would allow them in Pennsylvania. So when you look out coming out of the tunnel on Friday and Saturday night and just see a wall of students uh, behind the opposing net, and then obviously all of uh, – the alumni that always come back to, to watch us play and the community members uh, with a very big uh, season ticket following uh, makes, makes playing at uh, Penn State something bigger than yourself. And it's pretty, uh, it's pretty special. So you got your, your USHL start with the Dubuque Fighting Saints. When, when you started playing for Dubuque, what are your first couple memories of, of coming from a lower level and starting to play at the USHL? What, what were the first couple memories about how the game felt, where you were at as a player, things like that? Well, the, my first couple of games, uh, actually my first one, I ended up getting absolutely blown up by a guy that's had a pretty successful career in the NHL. So I missed a few weeks right off the hop. But uh, 
just the, the level of play and the style of play and how physical and fast it is coming from, whether you're coming from playing prep or uh, midget, it's, it's a huge step. And I think me playing two years was the biggest uh, attribute for my development. Um, you know, it takes probably about a half a year for me um, to even get my feet wet, it felt like, uh, in, in the league. So that second year where I, where I blossomed and had a really good year, was huge for my development and I think that allowed me to have an awesome freshman year as well. Yeah that was something that I actually had written down because this year's Fighting Saints team a lot of people that are listening to this interview will know that the most successful players the Jackson Twins, Reese Gaber, they all came back for their second year in the USHL so if you already started it but if you're pitching a player that's on the fence about going to college or trying another year in the USHL, what would you say to them to, to make them stay that extra year in the USHL? Well, I think a, a rule that I always had with my family was conquer the level that you were at, um, whether it was, you know, playing minor midget and having another year of eligibility in that aspect, whether moving up to major midget or, you know, having another year junior, it never hurts. You don't want to rush the process. And for, for me to sign a deal as a 20, turning 24-year-old, um, your, your, your time is never over and the opportunities are always going to be there, but make sure that uh, you take advantage of the level you're at and be where you're at, especially don't look forward to opportunities in the up and coming years and, and take advantage of what you have at stake. You mentioned taking about a half year to get your feet under yourself at the USHL level. When you got your feet under yourself and you could really focus on certain aspects of your game, what are a couple of things you, you remember improving on a bunch in your two years in the USHL that really helped your freshman year at Penn State? I think wall work as a winger uh, is a huge uh, attribute you can have in your game. Uh, everyone knows, you know, the, the danger zones from the tops of the circle to the blue line in your own zone. And then obviously in the O zone, you never want to turn one over pucks uh, high there. So I think my wall work really improved over my two years um, in the USHL. And then I played wing moving on to center uh, a few a few times and then ultimately I ended as a center but having uh having the ability to get pucks out and be relied on in the D zone was a huge thing that I could uh, move into the college ranks uh, and having the reliability of my coaches knowing I could be out there in in dire need situations uh, whether we're up a goal or down a goal you mentioned the, the craziness of playing in front of the, the roar zone at Pagula Ice Arena. For your junior hockey experience, what was it like coming out every night and playing at the Mystique Community Ice Center? It was incredible. Um, having the, the, the city around you in kind of a small city. I'm from Rochester, New York, so Dubuque was definitely a smaller city for me. And seeing the support uh, from the season ticket holders, uh, the, the college students that come out on college night, uh, was awesome. And then obviously you got to give it up to the billet families that put so much time, effort, money into to hosting us Fighting Saints players. Um, they give, they deserve all the credit for what they do, uh, whether it's cooking your meals, uh, making sure, you know, your laundry's done and, and everything uh, above and beyond. They do it to the, the top notch. You mentioned the the billet families for for Fighting Saints, and really for all of junior hockey, it doesn't exist without the billet families. Uh, for that's I think part of the junior hockey experience that might be lost on a couple people is you're you're anywhere from 16 to to 18 years old, and you're moving away from home. You're living with a completely new family. What was that 
feeling like to be living in a completely different household, different city for basically nine months out of the year? You know, it was it was really nerve wracking uh, making my 15 hour drive from Rochester to Dubuque. I never really knew what to expect, but uh, Dubuque's super lucky, at least for the time I was there, to have Patty um, as the uh, billet coordinator and then Joanne helping with all the academics. And they found me a, an awesome family with Robin and John Jackson. And the, their family took me in with open arms and kind of treated me like their own. And I've been fortunate enough for, for them to, you know, they come to Minnesota when I was at Penn State. They came to, to Notre Dame a few times and then obviously Wisconsin. And then they actually made a few trips out to Penn State as well. So um, if you can make an impact and make their lives easier, um, you'll be able to have a, a friendship and be part of their family for a lifetime. Yeah, you mentioned Robin. Every single time I saw her over the last couple of years, she would always bring up your name because she knew I went to Penn State. So I always knew exactly what what Nate Susie's stat line was this last weekend, thanks to thanks to <laughs> Robin. So that was always a, a nice keep up on Penn State hockey. But uh, you mentioned the cooking of the meals. So was there a go-to meal at the Jackson household? Uh, not really. Um, for dinner, uh, John kind of uh, took took over the reins for that. But uh, on Fridays, um, Robin actually worked her tail off from, from Monday to Thursday, her 40 hours, so that she could have Fridays off. And she would make, you know, all of us our breakfast after pregame skate and then have our pregame meal ready um, before we head out the door on Fridays for home games. So I give I give all the credit to both of them for the time they put in and really <laughs> All we had to do was show up. And so to have people like that in your corner and make things that much easier for you allows you to just concentrate on your play and ultimately it leads to success. Two years building a lot of great memories. Do you have one or two that, not necessarily on the ice or off the ice, but just in general, one or two memories that really stick out from your time in Dubuque? Um, one memory would have to be just the guys. Um, we had such a close-knit group both years. Um, with Keegan Ford, you know, legendary names like him, Gambrell, Malone, Brett Boeing. Uh, you can go down the list, Gordy Green. But every Thursday night, we'd, we'd play uh, poker with each other um, before home games or, or Xbox tournaments and even knee hockey as 18-year-olds. So I think the close-knit group that we had off the ice uh, led to success on the ice. And then I think one on-ice memory would have to have been when we were down I think it was four to one. Shane Cavanaugh had an absolute huge fight against uh, Bloomington later in my second year. And we ended up winning the game five to four with like, I think we scored four goals in the last like eight minutes. And the moment, momentum that a guy like him brought to the table with whether it was his physical play or when, when he had to drop the gloves when needed was just everyone knew that we had each other's backs and there was never a, a time where we were going to quit. Uh, a lot of, I had another question that just popped to my mind. Uh, a lot of people uh, on this year's team with the second year players talk about not just the on ice experience, but also the off ice experience being such a big part uh, of growth and staying for that second year. Did you have someone your first year that kind of took you under uh, their wing? And then did you feel yourself transition to that role more your second year? I think Gambrell was a huge uh, mentor in my, my time in my first year. Uh, we ended up kind of being pretty good buddies uh, and line mates for, for a better half of the year. And obviously he had an incredible first uh, through third year at uh, Denver and he kind of hit the ground running his freshman year and uh, ultimately got drafted. 
And uh, he was a leader on the team uh, with a letter on his shoulder. And uh, ultimately, the, the next year, I ended up having a letter on my shoulder. So I could give uh, him uh, Sasha Rock. I mean, uh, you can go down the list with the veterans we had our, our, my first year. But um, all, and the coaching staff, OD being the assistant coach at the time, uh, never gave up on me. He'd always have video clips uh, to, to make me better. We'd, we'd go over a bunch of film, and then Coach Shaw gave me a bunch of opportunities um, moving forward. So I think the, the coaching staff and down to my teammates played a huge role uh, for my success in my second year. So you commit to Penn State after, and you go there after the Dubuque Fighting Saints. The names you mentioned uh, before, some of your roommates, some of just the players on this Penn State team, a lot of names that were USHL names back in the day, back when you were playing, when you knew you were going to Penn state and kind of saw some of the guys you were going to be playing with, who was one you were really excited to play with that you knew from your time in the USHL? Um, one of them would have to be Peyton Jones. Um, and then also, and then on the forward aspect, it'd be Dennis Smirnoff. He, he had success going back to his 16 year year old, um, playing with Indiana Ice, winning a championship with them ultimately before they, they didn't have a team anymore. And then Jones had uh, an incredible second year uh, in junior as the same year I did. And uh, he ultimately came in and was our starting goalie. And then uh, Dennis led our team in points uh, with, I think, 47 as a freshman, which is unheard of. All right, Nate. Well, thanks so much for joining us. If you're up for it, we have uh, some rapid fire questions that I like to rattle off before the end of this interview. If you're, you're in for that. Go for it. All right. Absolutely. So the first one is favorite place to play in the USHL other than Dubuque. Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids. All right. Go to snack on the bus. A lot of long bus rides in the USHL. Uh, I was a big Gushers and Oreo guy. Give us the go-to song that you had blaring in your headphones before a game. Um, welcome to the jungle or X going to give it to you by DMX. Do you have any hockey superstitions? <laughs> I got all of them. Uh, <laughs> it would take me too long to go through them, but everything starts on the right side. Um, and then Thursday nights, I spend about two and a half hours taping my sticks and uh, spending time stretching in the Norma Tech boots. Someone comes to state college and they say, where's the best go-to place for a late night eat? Where are you telling them to go? College pizza. Finally, uh, obviously, everyone's kind of spending a lot of time at home right now. So, so give us your go-to one or two shows on Netflix right now that you're watching. I'm watching Ozark right now and All American. All righty, perfect. Well, Nate, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate you uh, doing this with us. Yeah, no problem, Jack. Anytime. Thank you. And now we welcome you back to the Fighting Saints Report. Jack Molesky joined by Jim Leitner once again. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Nate Seuss. And if you want to continue to tune in and hear from former Fighting Saints, be sure to tune in every single week for the Fighting Saints Report. We've got a couple other interviews lined up already. We'll have Willie Neerum on the show in the coming weeks. We'll have Austin Ruschoff and also Hunter Miska, a couple interviews that we have in the works for you guys to uh, enjoy some hockey in a time that doesn't have much hockey. But as we get back to our top 10 countdown, Jim's here with two more games that we really wanted to uh, get into. But before we do that, Jim, we have to, I think, talk a little bit about Nate Susis because as you heard in the interview, obviously ecstatic to sign that contract with the Arizona Coyotes. But 
he put together a great career with the Fighting Saints, and then all he did was went on to become Penn State's all-time leading point scorer and all-time leading goal scorer in the four years he spent with the Nittany Lions. A pretty impressive jump from juniors to college, and now hopefully an impressive jump from college to the pros as well. Yeah, he was. Uh, he's one of those guys that, uh, you know, I think he was uh, one of the fan, one of the players that the fans could really relate to, and you know, I, I guess. It, in, in modern terms, it, he kind of reminded me a lot of Reese Gaber, you know, when he was when he was here in Dubuque, just a guy who had such an incredible drive and such an incredible passion for the game. And, you know, it, it seemed like he played when he ever had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. He always seemed to take his game up a notch. And a couple of a couple of stories that I really, really liked about him that people might not have seen. Obviously, he, when he first started here, he, he had an injury with his spleen and he couldn't play for a month. And, you know, but he came back better than ever after that and really had a great first season. But the other story was, uh, I think it was in his second season, he got, uh, he got clipped in the mouth and the, he had to wear a, a protective shield. And I remember seeing him at practice and um, he had, it was the first day that he had the shield on, on or a wire cage. It was either a cage or a shield. It was the first game that he had it on and he was out there by himself practicing. And, you know, you could just see how frustrated he was because it wasn't comfortable. And, you know, he hated the fact that he was not going to be able to play or that his season was going to be interrupted a little bit because he, you know, because he still had a little discomfort and, uh, but it just showed how passionate he was about the game and, you know, how much he wanted to be out on the ice, even if he had to wear a shield, he was going to do it to, you know, to keep playing the game and keep contributing to the Fighting Saints. And that second year he was in Dubuque, he was, he was dynamic and, you know, it really showcased or really foreshadowed a lot of the success that he was going to have at Penn State. And we, we talked about that during his interview as, as well. It just, it was, I wanted to to ask him about that second year because we talked about it so much this season with the Jackson twins and Reese Gaber and Kalen Taylor and Luke Robinson. And the list goes on and on of guys that decided to come back for a second year for Dubuque. And you saw how much that experience and how much that skill level developed from one year to the next and how much that aided the fighting saints and, and Susie's was, he was, uh, the, the phrase he used is dominate the level you're at before you move on to the next level. And I think that was pretty uh, <clears throat> relevant for a lot of players this year in Dubuque with how important it is to have great success at one level before you decide to make that jump. There's no reason to rush it. And a lot of guys that didn't rush it, it paid off, even though they didn't get to finish the season. We didn't see how high those numbers climbed. The Jackson twins and Gaber are the perfect example of offensive studs that became elite players at the USHL level in their second season. No doubt about it. And, you know, those are guys that could have moved on very easily. They could have moved on this season, but, you know, I think it's, it's really important on two different levels. Uh, for one, it really helps the individual player. Uh, so when you go to that next level, uh, you're not you're not sitting on the bench, or you're not uh, relegated to one of the lower lines. You're you're able to contribute right away because you're you're a lot more used to playing at a high level, and you have the confidence to play at a higher level. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it, obviously, from a Dubuque standpoint, is you're going to help the Fighting Saints to be a lot more successful. And you know, I think there's a lot more players who are understanding that if they come back for that second year, or in some cases that third year. Uh, they can really take their games to another level and they can, you know, help the team too. And, and winning is, is a, 
a huge factor in how, how much success you're going to have at the, the next level too. If you, if you come and you have a lot of success at the USHL level, you learn how to win in a very difficult beat, it's going to benefit your game as well when you get to that next level. Well, speaking of the next level, a player that uh, for Fighting Saints fans, unfortunately doesn't look like he's coming back next year, but uh, was a big part of this next top five game that we're talking about. We'll go to January 24th, and it was one of the best games, one of the best performances of the season, I thought, for Eric Portillo in a 3-2 victory over the Omaha Lancers. And it wasn't just that Omaha fired 38 shots to Dubuque's 23 in that game, and Portillo had to stand on his head. But it was also just as a team, the context of that game, you win 9-3 the night before on home ice and then have to travel immediately after the game through the night, at least part of it, to Omaha to play another game less than 24 hours afterwards. So fatigue's already a major factor for the Fighting Saints to gut out that victory and for Portillo to perform the way he did. I, I thought that was enough to push this into the top five just because of a, how good that Portillo performance was, but also how much the Fighting Saints as a team had to gut that 65 minutes out. Yeah, and that's one of the things that another kind of theme that, that I noticed too, that they, they were, the Saints were in that situation, you know, a handful of times this year where they were playing a team that was a lot more rested, uh, that was a lot in a lot better shape because, you know, the Fighting Saints were maybe playing their second game of the weekend while the other team was playing its first and that's that's really difficult. I mean, no matter what uh, what level you're at or what age you're at, that's a difficult thing to do. And and Omaha was a team that was really surging at that point, uh, and they were playing really good hockey. And uh, it's, that's a tough tough challenge for a team like no matter who you are to, to go into a situation where you're playing a rested team after you know playing the night before, expending a lot of energy. And they played the USA team the, the night before, and that's a team that likes to get up and skate. So, I mean, you're, you're expending a lot of energy in a game like that where you're, you're going out and you're going end-to-end -end and skating real hard. And so I think that was, that was a difficult thing. But you're right. I think that was an outstanding, uh, outstanding effort by the Fighting Saints to bounce back the way they did and, and to, to have the kind of performance they did against a, a really good quality Omaha team that, you know, probably, you know, really probably should have won that game. Yeah, and I, I think that was that was one of the – not the few examples, but one that was glaringly obvious because this season there were a lot of games that without Eric Portillo when he was in net, the Fighting Saints might not have won the game or might not have blown out the other team. I, I, but I think this was a, a stark example of a game they absolutely wouldn't have won if Portillo didn't perform the way he did in net. And I think there weren't as many of these games simply because the team that was in front of Portillo was so good so much of the time that he didn't really have to stand on his head. And same when Aiden McCarthy was in net. The goaltenders didn't have to stand on their heads a lot of the time to win games, but they had two great goaltenders, and Portillo just had his night to shine between the pipes that could still perform at an elite level when the team in front of them wasn't performing up to their standards. And that's exactly what you saw from Portillo. For my money, it was probably the best goaltending performance of the season for any fighting Saint context included uh, for, for what the team had to do in front of him the night before. And then to come back and play 24 hours later at times that game, it was Portillo against four or five Lancers because the fighting Saints just didn't have a lot left in the tank. Yeah, it really showcased, yeah, how good the goaltending was in Dubuque. That game, that game really did. But, you know, to your earlier point, I think, you know, there were, 
there were a lot of times and, you know, you'd hear it in post-game interviews with, which, with coach David, where, you know, the game might've been a five to one game or something like that, but the goaltenders made huge saves or really important saves when the outcome was still in doubt. And, you know, it, it was a, it was a really good year, probably the best year for goaltenders in Dubuque, not only just having a, you know, a great number one in Eric Portillo, but having a, a you know, an outstanding number two in Aiden McCarthy and even Hobie Hedquist had a couple, you know, had an, an outing where he was really outstanding as well. So uh, I think this was probably as good a year for goaltenders in Dubuque as, as we've ever seen. And for the fighting saints though, though Portillo looks likely to move on uh, the plan for, from what I've heard is McCarthy, will will likely be back for the Fighting Saints. And also Hobie Hedquist hasn't even become a full-time member of the Fighting Saints. So really it, there's a lot of depth and there's a lot of skill in the in between the pipes for the foreseeable future for the Fighting Saints. But that was a game that I, I felt just highlighted that more so than any other this season. Uh, we have one more game in our top five. And I'm going to preface this final game by saying that if you're if I'm looking at this from the scope of just a casual fan with no ties to any team for my money, this was the best game of the season that the fighting saints were a part of. If you don't have a side in the affair, this was the best game of the season. In my opinion, it had everything. It was a matchup between the top two teams in the league. At that point, it went to overtime. It featured some highlight reel goals. It featured some great saves. It featured a comeback. It featured 11 combined goals, and the Fighting Saints didn't end up winning this game. But when I look back at the season and I think of this game, this is probably the most disappointing thing that didn't come from this season was what looked to be a surefire Eastern Conference Finals between the Fighting Saints and the Chicago Steel. Because on March 7th, despite a furious comeback, Dubuque loses 6-5 in overtime to Chicago. But this was such a prime example of what I thought a playoff series would have looked like between these two teams. And it was an electric 65 minutes of hockey. It was. It was outstanding. And, you know, the big thing was with the Fighting Saints is they were, this was the fourth and final meeting with Chicago. Uh, Chicago had won the previous three. A couple of them were in real disappointing fashion. And uh, one was, I think, a 7-2 to two loss. And, you know, so, I mean, it it was really an opportunity to the Fighting Saints to show, you know, that they were on more of an even par with Chicago. I mean, you know, I, I think they probably deserved uh, more than just, uh, you know, one point in the season series against Chicago. I think they, they probably deserved a couple, a couple wins in that, or at least one more win in that, that uh, series. But this was one, you know, it's the last game of the regular season series between the two teams. Chicago had already won the first three. Um, it would have been very easy for the Fighting Saints to give up, up, you know, trailing it going into the third period against a team that never lost when they were uh, trailing after two periods. And to score three goals in the third period to, to force overtime, I thought that was a huge feather in their cap and, you know, a real confidence booster in case they did eventually end up meeting uh, Chicago in the, uh, in the Eastern Conference Finals that obviously we don't have those now. but. I mean, I think that was a real good confidence booster. And, you know, I think that's, you're right. I would have loved to see the playoff series between Chicago and Dubuque. I think it would have been really entertaining and uh, not just from, from the fans of the the fighting saints or the steel, I think it would have been a great series for, for fans around the entire USHL Mm -hmm. to watch that series. 
and that was the second to last game. Obviously, we didn't know it at the time, but the second to last game that Dubuque would play in the 2019-2020 regular season. And it was it was nice that in that game, again, the Fighting Saints lost, but it was nice that Reese Gaber got career goal 56 uh, in that game to become the tier one leader for the Fighting Saints in career goals. He, he scored the fourth goal of the game for Dubuque um, and, and obviously didn't score in the next game against Waterloo. But uh, for, for a player that was probably going to become the first Fighting Saint to 40 goals in a single season and, and at least, I would say, be 60-plus on his career, uh, Gaber was going to set a few more records at least this season if it had continued. But nice to get that big one. And uh, I think that's going to be a number that stands for a good amount of time because you have to essentially average 30 goals over two seasons to hit the number that Gaber has right now. And that's really tough to do. Yeah. I, yeah. It's going to be really difficult. And I mean, you look at the dynamic players like the Jacksons, they had their, their moments as rookies, but they really didn't, you know, they didn't have outstanding, you know, they had good, really good productive seasons their first year, but to do, like you said, to have 30 goals, uh, average 30 goals over two seasons, which is, uh, really difficult to do. It's, it's tough to have one 30 goal season, let alone two. And I think you're right. I think it is going to stand for quite a while and, and that's appropriate. You know, coach David always said that uh, Reese Gaber was kind of a signature saint. That was kind of his nickname for him. And it's true. You know, he's a guy who was so gritty and, you know, loved the game so passionate about the game and, you know, it's, it's appropriate that he has that record. And, and like you said, I think it's going to last for a while. Well, those are the top five games that Jim and I decided on for this season. And uh, you'll have your a chance to immediately agree or rebut with this social media contest that we're, we're doing. We're whittling down the top 10 to the top five, and then we'll see which one reigns number one. But uh, just a way to highlight, I think, a great season that unfortunately didn't get a final, finality in any type of way other than unfortunately having to come to an end the way it did. But a lot of great games to highlight with this team. We could have probably done another separate top five and been in complete agreement that those were the top five games of the season. Just shows you how good the Fighting Saints had it this year with this team. Uh, but make sure to vote on that social media contest. Make sure to tune in again next week as we'll be talking to another former Fighting Saint and also figuring out how we can pass the time while still talking hockey. Jim, thanks again for taking the time to join me remotely here today. No problem. No problem at all. All righty. We'll talk to you guys, all of you on this podcast next week.